I am Mark D. This is WGPM FM, Gross Point, Window on the Points. You heard from Massive Attack, 3 Six Mafia, His Infernal Majesty, that's my personal favorite, and Dwayne Allman's Twangy Guitar. Good to hear some 311, huh? Amber is the color of my energy. And, as you know, this weekend is the Mark's Movie Collection podcast, Class of 2022 Reunion. So in honor of this momentous event, I'll release an episode making this a all-movie, all-podcast weekend. Stay tuned to Windows on the Point, and I'll keep you posted on all this reunion-related nonsense. I want to read you something. I'm working, Marcella. Dear Points High alumni, can you believe it's been 10 years since you left Gross Point? Don't tease me, you know what I do for a living. I just honestly don't know what I have in common with those people anymore. And what am I gonna say? Killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? Go see some old friends, have some punch, visit with what's her name? Debbie. Don't kill anybody for a few days, see what it feels like. I'll give it a shot. No, no, don't give it a shot, don't shoot anything. I'm a pet psychiatrist. I sell couch insurance. I lead a weekend men's group. We specialize in ritual killings. Hi, I'm Martin. You remember me? Oh, I know who you are. What I miss? What, since you stood me up on prom night and vanished without a word? Hmm. I'll come home. Let's get up putting together a little concern. You mean like a union? You in trouble? Just a moment. Haven't changed a bit. Don't say that. <laughs> what do you do, Mark? Professional killer. Oh, good for you. It's a growth industry. Do you have to do postgraduate work for that, or can you can you jump right in? There's a contract out in your life, but I'm not going to do it. It's either because I'm in love with your daughter, or I have a newfound respect for life. That punk is either in love with that guy's daughter, or he has a newfound respect for life. Debbie, I'm in love with you. But I know we can make this relationship work. It's not easy for me. I always control my emotions. I just need time to change. Why don't you just join the union? This union, is there gonna be meetings? Of course! No meetings. I want you to think about this, and you don't have to answer it now. But Debbie, will you marry me? By the numbers, this might be the first Disney movie I've talked about. Gross Point Blank was released April 11th, 1997 by the Walt Disney Corporation. Wholesome, family-friendly family rated R fun. Indeed. It, and it went on to go to a $28 million domestic box on a $15 million budget. It proceeds, analyze this, and the big hit, but shares certain aspects with both. If you watch prestige television, then you've probably become acquainted with HBO's Barry, which is certainly the progeny of Gross Point Blank that left Detroit to make it big in Hollywood. My lackluster performance in the intro side, I'd really like to talk about the radio motif that allows for the more organic, if not totally diegetic, introduction of a banger, heavy, 
soundtrack to the movie. There is some really great stuff here, and yes, it's Cusack, Devicentis, and Steve Pink, and writer and story creator Tom Jankowicz. This movie has D.V. Devicentis listed as a music consultant, and we know from the future in High Fidelity that he most approximates the Rob Gordon and Championship Vinyl crew. So this just makes a ton of sense. Before I start on the bangers, I'll just point out that I I dislike every iteration of Guns N' Roses, and while the Live and Let Die theme is, is a pretty good song, they do it bad. There's also a Faith No More track in here, and that's not my vibe either. Maybe I'm simple, and maybe I just don't get Faith No More, but this is how I feel. There was actually two LPs put out. Gross Point Blank, music from the film, and Gross Point Blank, more music from the film. On those two, there are just killer, killer acts like English Beat, Violet Femmes, The Specials, David Bowie, Echo and the Bunnymen, Susie and the Banshees, and the Daz Band, and The Clash, as well as Clash member Joe Strummer, who also arranged the score for the movie. A ton of great music. And and from the LP lists, right, from those kind of uh, commercially released soundtracks, uh, which are not totally encompassing, I'd have to say that my top five songs are, and in no particular order, The Killing Moon by Echo and the Budding Men, Cities and Dust by Susie and the Banshees, White Lines by Grand Master Flash and Melly Mel, Monkey Gone to Heaven by The Pixies, and Take On Me by Aha. So the soundtracks weren't uh, comprehensive. They were good, but they weren't comprehensive. And one of my most listened to songs in my life, probably, is is in the movie, in, in the movie, and, and that's Ace of Spades by Motorhead, which pops off in the shootout in the Ultimart, which I will need to talk about because at its roots, this movie is a love letter to so many things. And maybe that's one of the reasons that I like it so much, because it, too, really likes things. In the intro, I picked groups that were popular when I had graduated high school, and I'm sure I missed a few because I did struggle to come up with that list. My my music brain isn't indexed quite that way. But yeah, well, we're going to talk about things. We're going to talk about things for sure. George Armitage, sometimes called a journeyman director online, got the job for this one. It seemed like a somewhat unorthodox production, at least for the time, but he is quoted as saying that he uh, shot three movies simultaneously, right? And he says, we shot the script as written, we shot a mildly understated version, and we shot a completely over-the-top version, which usually was what was used. And if you think of Lord and Miller, that's the vibe. And you you can tell. Uh, one thing that, that stuck out in their, t- to me, one thing that stuck out to me in their movies and, and in this one, when viewing it as an adult, is that, and this is going to sound shitty, but it, go, go with me here, is that, is that the takes, some of the takes don't quite feel like they fit. And that comes from that kind of improv arena where they're, just spitting alts over and over and over on the one setup, and the opposite may not be captured, even if they have 
an actor on the opposite. And I'm not saying I don't like it. I I absolutely love the unhinged takes in this movie as well as, as in others, but I'm saying that it, it is just sometimes you can tell. This movie was appropriately casted with improvisation as a part of the reading process, and it totally works. Minnie Driver and John Cusack have the weirdest, sweetest, and most awkward chemistry, and it just feels like a, a breath of fresh air. John Cusack and Joan Cusack are obviously siblings, and I love seeing them together in anything. Anne Cusack shows up, and she's great too. Uh, Bill Cusack, the fourth in the collection, is also in this as a waiter. So it's a great time. Jeremy Piven and John Cusack were old friends. It's, it's great, top to bottom. And it's great in that not like winning awards way, but it's it's great in a making me feel good way, if that if, if you can dig that, if that makes sense. Uh, there is the uh, objective goodness, right, that somehow there's a metric of, and it is biased towards what we call Oscar bait. This movie is not that, but I think that it is very good. And and as with any improv heavy productions, there were a lot of alternate scenes, uh, likely deleted scenes and multiple endings. And to my knowledge, none of them have been released. And I had like a weird clip on my Blu-ray copy that for whatever reason, I didn't have sound on when I put it on Plex. So maybe I'll run that down again and, and, and just see if maybe those are alts or something. And I, I messed up somewhere. Um, but we, but we can run down the cast now because this is just a great cast. If I discover anything, I'll I'll put it in the show notes as one of my diatribes. Uh, I, I'd love to think of them as essays, but they're closer to rants. But yeah, the, the show notes actually sometimes are full notes, like full on notes, things that didn't even make it into the audio. So check that out. Uh, John Cusack stars, uh, obviously. I've talked about John Cusack in the previous episode. He's great. He's uh, he's the Martin Blank of the film's title, Gross Point Blank, with a, which, which, which is a wonderful little pun. This movie, however, started my crush on Minnie Driver, who I fully thought was American for a while. I think that she's absolutely wonderful as a slightly unhinged Gen Xer with a lot of emotions running deep while also having the most Gen X dream job that is radio DJ. And that part is written really well too. That little uh, that little kind of monologue I tried to riff off of was executed perfectly by Driver. <clears throat> I couldn't even say that was executed perfectly by Driver and had a part that I left out where she says, uh, where are all the good men dead? She asked that question, and that is totally Gen X as fuck. It was something that, that Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka quotes in the Chocolate Factory flick, but it comes from The Merchant of Venice and is originally, tell me where is fancy bread? Or in the heart or in the head? And I take it to mean fancy as desire, but this plays so well with the character of Debbie, who is, she literally got married to run away and then got divorced, searching and then failing to find. She now asks, where are all the good men dead? 
in the heart or in the head. Alan Arkin is third build, and I think that's maybe a little bit much. That's maybe more his status than anything, but he has a small part as Dr. Oatman, Martin Blank's therapist. He's put upon, intimidated by, and terrified of Martin Blank, and it's, it's very fun indeed. It's basically analyze this. He's, uh, he's there to punctuate the later parts of the movie with a, a tiny bit of out-of-the-action humor and then, you know, kind of on the front end to help info dump. You know, it's, it's good stuff. Dan Aykroyd plays the antagonist grocer, Martin, Martin Grocer, I believe, who is the rival assassin hell-bent on cornering the assassination business to the point where he would put a bullet in Martin Blank, who is about to walk away from assassinations entirely. He's just a real uh, shit heel, that grocer, but that makes the movie play a little better. Uh, Martin Blank is a, is a big-time cat-saving uh, at the outset, right? He's just saving all the cats, and, and he's got that natural charm and vulnerability and just general charisma, right, of Cusack. So, so Cusack gets Martin Blank, the assassin, into the audience's heart, Grocer is the antithesis. Grocer is the mirror darkly. Aykroyd bringing the same amount of energy that he does to selling vodka, which is uh, jarring, uncomfortable, and intense. So it's good. The wonderful Joan Cusack plays Marcella, Martin Blank's assistant, and she's got a few scenes to, to choose scenery in that are great, but she's also got like the wildest relationship with Martin that I love so much. She refers to him as Sir, which is such an anti-Gen X thing. And I freak out when someone calls me Sir. I feel like they're trying to suck up to me or something, and I'm, I'm very not into it. Hank Azaria and K. Todd Freeman play NSA agents who are, you know, if not fully corrupt, at least complacent with grocer's endeavors. I group them together because they are, one, always together, and two play a relatively small role, but they do in the Kevin Smith clerk's fashion, examine the morality of their involvement in the whole situation akin to discussing the morality of working on the Death Star. And, and they're great. I love Hank Azaria and everything, and K. Todd Freeman was really just fucking nailed it as Mr. Trick in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I'm I'm actually genuinely shocked to see that he was listed for only five episodes. His role feels much larger in my memory. He's been in a bunch of stuff before and since, and is, is generally great. You know, never mind that the, the NSA shouldn't be doing stuff like this domestically. You know, like, hey, kid, it ain't that kind of movie. You know, it ain't that kind of movie, kid. Whatever. I'll, I'll let Mark Hamill do the, the Harrison Ford. Hey, kid, it ain't that kind of movie. Maybe that's more the vibe, just I have the, the, the chest resonance. But J Jeremy Piven plays Paul Sperecki, Sperecki, who is Martin Blank's only friend, really, from, from back in high school. Uh, they meet in a Ned Ryerson fashion, but instead of being put off by it, Martin is into catching up with his boy, you know? And Piven's just there doing his thing, and he's a funny guy especially in the absence of his shitty, like, entourage persona, which I think may have kind of made its way into his real life, from what I've understood. I really don't... 
I don't keep track of of Jeremy Piven much, but he's he, when he he does the thing right, he does it really fucking right. Uh, Mitchell Ryan, a Lethal Weapon alum, plays Debbie's dad, Bart Newberry, in the Twist of Fate. That often happens, where the love interest's father is now the target of multiple assassins, and and he's 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 good too, right? Mitchell Ryan knows what he's doing. Uh, the commercials for this movie. Always give everything away. The trailer gave the entire plot of the movie away, even so much as to give you one of the last lines in the movie. Um, Man, fuck trailers, but at least I don't feel like I ruined it. The trailer did. And weirdly, I had seen the trailer and seen, and most of that made it to commercials, and I was still like, wow, what a movie. So maybe the movie's good enough, even if you know what happens. But that part where Mitchell Ryan and, and Minnie Driver are hiding in the bathroom, that, that, that always gets me. And, and he's great. He's great, though. Benny Urquides, however, is an unsung star. He plays a French assassin in the movie, but is actually a famous kickboxer who has been John Cusack's long-term kickboxing instructor. There are some highlight reels of his on YouTube, and I'll drop one in the links uh, in the show notes. Um, my dude is the real deal. He's a, a, a world champ type shit. He comes in as a, as a total weird assassin. And he doesn't have any fucking dialogue as far as I can tell. And, you know, that's playing to his strengths. He has his look and his physicality. But their hallway fight was fun. Uh, he coordinates stunts on a bunch of films. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He was in uh, a Jackie Chan movie in one of the best fights, I believe, that Jackie Chan was ever in. Uh, he played a villain in one of those movies. I might be misremembering that, but I feel that that's appropriate because the dude watched the highlight video. I'm not into fight. I'm not into fighting as a sport, but I I can absolutely appreciate it when you see that somebody's just really fucking good at beating the shit out of somebody else. This is the guy, right? Of notable cameos, we talked about Ann Cusack as Amy, uh, D.V. DeVicentis as Dan Koretsky, Steve Pink as Terry Rostand, Jenna Elfman's film debut as Tanya in a full-body brace like Joan Cusack wore in Sixteen Candles. Those are the ones that I could uh, remember. There might be more. I don't fucking know. Uh, there, there's one really good cameo of, you can't come in. That's from the song that she's listening to. She didn't just get a Jamaican accent out of nowhere. That's actually in the song that she's listening to. So when you watch the movie, you'll be like, oh, okay. But they don't set that up for us. They actually cut a little sooner, probably for for time, right, for pace. You got to keep it snappy. The cast was great and excellent, but there is there's more than improvisation here at work. There is... This really rebellious Gen X undercurrent happening. Uh, everyone talks about being in business and wearing suits and stuff while, while Debbie the radio DJ is the epitome of cool, but also comes from like an incredibly wealthy family. It's implied that Martin's father drank himself to death while Martin was still in high school or just afterwards. Martin's mom is in a full-time care facility because she's got some level or form of dementia. Martin is the brooding protagonist, but 
in the way that is more more pain than anything when he's forced to shoot the guy in Miami the way he says it isn't me right it really shows the pain within he's no longer as compartmentalized as he probably once was debbie being rejected on prom night went running into a relationship into a marriage that clearly did not work out for her paul had to to trade up to be a schmoozy realtor you know the high school bully sells bmws there's an undercurrent of grocer doing everything that blank does because he's jealous right like they both drive black lincoln town cars uh, blank points out when Debbie gets into her sob also that that no one buys American anymore and being from Detroit that's a whole thing like that's a that's a big deal in this movie the corporatization and and commoditization of America is in there right with Martin Blank's childhood home even being converted into an Ultimart an Ultimart being a convenience store and it's a huge nod to Lethal Weapon. There are more than a couple of homages and tips of the hat, but I think at a, at a grand scale, you know, even though Cusack talks about this being like a, a post-Bush era comedy, it doesn't hit that that hard as it hits the, the every manness of Martin Blank, who has had this wild life and career as an assassin, but still still struggles over the memory of the girl he ran away from in high school. And that's super relatable. At the end of the day, this is almost a character examination of a James Bond type. Yeah, like he's an elegantly dressed, trained killer, but but how did he get that way? What, what, what is he really like? What are his flaws and his quirks? Seeing as how there's a, a cover of a James Bond theme in the movie, I think this is a very plausible approach to analysis. I will also point out and 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 just by I'll just name the title of the show One Punch Man just I'll say it again One Punch Man High school is kind of fucked up for everyone in this movie and they are all for lack of a better term trying their best some are more successful or happier than others and and it's wild but, uh, I mean especially as as many years north of my 10 year reunion as I am to see people who I always thought to be adults going through it. I could never have examined myself with such a lens at the time, but I, it is interesting, and I, I don't think that I am very different from any of them. I didn't go to my high school reunion, though I was, I was double-booked for something way more important. But I think about that, and I wonder if it would have made a difference at all. And I suspect it would not have. I don't know if this is an actual memory or a dream that I had or something that I saw on TV or any combination of the above, but I recall a scenario in my head where in high school, uh, two guys got into an argument about, I don't know, some shit, maybe fucking Dave Matthews band or something. I don't remember the exact details and I may be conflating two situations, but, but, but someone popped off with like, my dad works at Sony. Like, what do you even do here you don't you don't exist in the school or or something thereabouts like you don't exist in this school is is kind of the part that i i took away with me and martin blank pulls a quote from from death of a salesman 
when uh, Jeremy Piven's character Paul is, is trying to sell a house and, and Martin Blank says, I've always felt kind of temporary about myself. And for me in high school, I always felt kind of invisible about myself or, or not invisible, but just like outside of existence, maybe. Like my life was happening. It was something happening outside of me. And, and I started to believe the hype, you know, like I didn't exist at that school. I didn't exist. I was not a person, maybe. And maybe that's part of this movie that, that kind of vaguely gets examined, right? Like don't believe the hype. Um, Martin was so scared, he just went and left and joined the army and became a trained killer. Was he scared of the socioeconomic disparity that he felt between himself and Debbie? Likely, real likely, because she is like capital R rich as fuck. Is that real shit for like a high school kid? A hundred percent. The movie doesn't spell everything out, but it, it does give you things to work with. But now he's got money and, and he can dress nice and drive a town car. And he's going through a what does it all mean phase, you know, to crib from high fidelity. And, and Martin is realizing the things that truly matter to him. And I think a lot of this has to do with creator Tom uh, Jankowicz. I know that the QSAC crew are fans of things, but I think that uh, Jankowitz was too. It's mythologized, right, that Jankowitz first thought up the title for the movie while substitute teaching English, and he wrote it up on the board. Gross point blank, gross, uh, G-R-O-S-S-E, point like point A, and then blank like, again, this is a, a great title, right? Gross point Michigan. Point blank, Martin blank. It it works. It really does. Jankowitz lived in the more blue-collar Sterling Heights, which was also a suburb of Detroit, but it didn't have as much curb appeal, nor did it have quite the cleverness required for Hollywood. Jankowitz came up with the story when he received his invitation to his own 10th high school reunion, 10th year high school reunion, I don't know, 10 year high school reunion, let, let's call it that. I imagine, and, and this is due to a relative paucity of material on, on Jankowitz out there, that he was like asking himself, what the fuck would be the wildest and most badass thing to show up and say to a high school reunion? And then he worked from there. And I get that. Had I attended mine, I wouldn't have felt so great at all. So I get it in my mind. Jankowicz was uh, not feeling great about himself, but on top of not feeling great about himself, he was also a dreamer. After Gross Point Blank, Jankowicz uh, didn't really find a lot of credits. However, he did transition into advertising and was consulting on scripts. Sometimes they call that a fixer or a script doctor. And there have been many writers notorious for doing that uncredited job and being successful at it. I do wish that there was some kind of script doctor database that would let me know who did passes on movies because this is all kind of secretive and hush-hush. But, but I'm very curious, not, not even to out anybody, like I want to know. I did think that they wrote in 
the Live and Let Die theme because the writer for Live and Let Die is the noted screenwriter and script doctor Tom Mankiewicz, or Mankiewicz, and that's just too much of a coincidence to let go. The reason that you may never have heard of Tom Jankiewicz is that in 2013, appearing at a screening of Gross Point Blank at nearby California State University, San Bernardino, he collapsed during the Q&A section and later died in the hospital that very evening. And it's poetic that in the dialogue between Martin and Marcella, they have this exchange. Look, I have to go. Yeah, we all have to go sometimes, sir, but we can choose when. No one chooses when. Life is short. Life is fragile. We've been experiencing this to greater or lesser degrees for the past three years to the point of making it almost mundane. But it's no less true today than it it was in 2019. Reach out to someone. Tell someone you love them. Tomorrow may be too late. There's, there's a real quick scene outside of the radio station where, where Martin is walking Debbie back to her car. And the cinematographer, Jamie Anderson, uh, captures Minnie Driver's face in the neon red of the radio station signage. And the light falling on her, her expression, the, the exchange. In my memory, it was longer than the scene was because I don't know, but it was just, it was so great. Her expression was great. That scene, it plays like a memory to me, right? It's like a little bottle of nostalgia in a real weird way, in a real way and a weird way because they are adults, but this is almost like we had this moment 10 years ago, kind of nostalgia where I think back to my school days and I've been in, if not exact situations like that, at least in locations like that, where I remember the light, you know, falling on, on somebody's face. I'd like to think that someone's memories influenced that scene. And I'd like to think that it was uh, Jankowitz's memories. And I'd like to think that his memories and dreams shaped this film. You never know what's coming next. If you wanted to know why I was had such a consistent one-month release and then shit hit the fan, yeah, I got COVID and I'm careful. And it still happened and it hit me for just about a full month. I also uh, had a broken bone and that was rough too during having COVID. It sucked. So, you know, just listen, be safe. Take care. I know a lot's going on. Just, just try. Try your best. Try to be nice. Try to take care of everybody. And hopefully everybody takes care of you and we all help each other out. And uh, I'll, I don't know. I'll see you at the movies. I don't fucking know. What do I do? I'll see you next year. Hopefully. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see you also with songs on repeat. The, oh, Jesus Christ. The podcast that I announced which got fucking derailed because I got COVID. So, yeah. Oh, the best laid plans of mice and men. But take it easy, everyone. Good night.